Hello and welcome to the Random Works podcast. Today I have Dr. Stacy Malaker, who is currently an assistant professor at the Yale University. Professor Malaker obtained her bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan in biochemistry and anthropology geology, where she also worked at the protein structure facility performing peptide synthesis and using mass spectrometry for quality control. She went on to receive a PhD in chemistry from the University of Virginia in the laboratory of the renowned Professor Don Hunt, where her thesis work focused on enrichment and mass spectrometric identification of glycopeptides presented by the MHC class 1 and 2 processing pathways. Dr. Malakir continued to investigate the role of aberrant glycosylation in cancer as a National Institute of Health postdoctoral fellow in Professor Caroline Bertozzi's laboratory at Stanford University, where she used mass spectrometry and glycobiology to investigate mechanase activity on glycoproteins with the ultimate goal of characterizing cancer-derived mucins. Welcome, Professor Malakir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Stacey, you have had a very wonderful journey in science and worked in some of the top labs with renowned mentors of sorts who have been legends in their fields and all. So how did this journey in science start for you? Were there any early childhood inspirations you look forward to? Or was there some class in high school that you took that sort of inspired a journey in science? Or did you always set out with the goal of sort of pursuing a PhD and having had this incredible journey you have had through science and life? Um. The short answer is no. I um, I had somewhat of a circuitous route to 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 get where I am. Um, I am a first gen college student, so neither of my parents went to college, and um, so I didn't I didn't grow up with a, a ton of money or scientific you know influences in my life. Um, and that said, when I was in high school, I it did really well in biology and I really liked my biology teacher and I told my two, uh, my bio teacher and my chemistry teacher that I, I was going to go to the University of Michigan and then I was going to major in biology and my bio, both of them said that I shouldn't major in biology unless I wanted to become a teacher and at that point I was like I don't want to do that and so um they were like, you should major in chemistry. And I was like, I really don't like chemistry. And so they said I should major in biochemistry, which I did. Um, and uh, it was it was in college that I think everything sort of clicked for me that I really liked biochemistry. But even at the point of my juniors, like going into my senior year, when you really have to decide what you want to do after the fact, if you want to go to med school, if you want to go to pharmacy school, if you want to go to grad school, like you have to have these things figured out. I still was very, um, I, I was very unsure as to what I wanted to do. So I ended up taking a gap year in between um, undergrad and going to grad school just to figure out what I wanted to do. And so I thought I wanted to get a master's in forensics because I really was fascinated by forensics research and so on. And so I went to one of my biochem professors to ask for a letter of recommendation. And he insisted that I needed to not get a master's in forensics, but that I needed to get a PhD. So I only applied to schools that had forensics related research uh, in their PhD program. And that narrowed it down to three schools of those three, the University of Virginia was my favorite. Um, but on arriving to the University of Virginia, 
the professor that does forensics research, I, I met this person and I just realized that it probably wasn't a good fit for me. And luckily, um, just so happened that, you know, the founding father of biological mass spectrometry was in that department and uh, had actually previously given me an invite to come to his lab, which I turned down. Um, and I had to go back to him and say, you know, Don, I'm so sorry. Um, I, you know, I made a huge mistake. Please take me back. And he did. And I joined his lab and, um, and the rest is sort of history. So even after I joined his lab, I really didn't think I wanted to go into academia. I was sort of on the industry track and it was about my third or fourth year that I realized that what I was doing, I was really passionate about and that I think I could be a good mentor and PI and at every step along the way, I just said, like, if this works out great, you know, when I started my postdoc, I was like, if this works out awesome, if it doesn't like I'll, I'll go do something else. And when I went on the job market, I said, this works out and I get a job. Great. If I don't, I'll do something else. So, uh, I, at every stage, essentially I have been, um, sort of, guessing my way through this is the best way of putting that. That, that was, was a long-winded answer, sorry. No, absolutely. That was a really fantastic elucidation of the incredible journey you had. And it can be very much be said that your journey was a random walk rather than a fixed path that you traversed or something you knew. And it was shaped by some incredible mentors and some off chances and all, some lucky breakthroughs happening or something of that sort. And that was really fascinating. And you sort of talked about having these incredible mentors you have had around you who sort of helped shape your life out of sorts. So that was a really fantastic elucidation. And in between, you also talked about uh, how basically you were earlier, when you were starting off, you wanted to sort of major in biology, people around you sort of advised you against that, then, yeah, and chemistry was the option kept on the table. And eventually, you majored in biochemistry. And it basically speaks to the uh, testimony of science being a very inherently collaborative endeavor and across interdisciplinary endeavor rather than the whole serialization of science that one sort of gets a notion of either you do physics, chemistry or biology. It's not either or it's sort of more combining you and you and your incredible mentors have been living testimony of the sheer interdisciplinarity and collaborative endeavor of science. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, to date, a lot of chemistry departments have hangover tracks or paths or what have you, where they stick you in a path and you are, you know, put in the silo. And it's at least at a few of the institutions that I've been in, it's recognized that those silos are sort of antiquated and in, in real, like, realistically, you can't necessarily put anyone in one box because science is becoming so interdisciplinary. And, um, and so I think, yeah, the longer I've been in the field, the more interdisciplinary and far reaching it has become. That's a, a really decent point you made. And you sort of talked about sort of um, going to the University of Virginia, intending to work with a certain professor and basically figuring out things that not sort of were gonna work out. And then you eventually had a lucky breakthrough of sorts, or you sort of 
had a offer initially with professor don hunt a legend in the field of mass spectrometry and all so how was it sort of joining his lab and sort of like uh, working or even in the very first case figuring out a project that will sort of enthuse you for the next four or five years of your grad school journey okay that's a loaded question but i working with don was one of the best decisions i've ever made in my life i mean he is an incredible mentor and just has a wealth of information and experience and um you know he constantly had an open door for us if i had a question i could walk in his office and provided that he wasn't traveling or teaching like he was there and would drop anything just to you know give me 5 minutes to ask a question so i absolutely loved working with him um Now that said in terms of finding a PhD project um again it was a you know random walks if you will I was really really interested in the epigenetic research that he had or has I'm not sure if they're still doing much of it um in the lab where we were looking for histone modifications and um I was very into epigenetics uh in the late in my late undergrad and then early grad school career um so I started working on that project and I went through my whole candidacy pitching that to my committee and had worked for several months getting data on that and when I got back from candidacy uh my collaborator who was providing me samples actually switched projects and said you know I'm really sorry but I'm not going to be able to preserve pursue this any further. So I was sort of left high and dry and without a project and so that's when I switched to the MHC project um and I initially started off working on something that the lab had been doing for a really long time which was phosphopeptides presented by the MHC uh processing pathways. Um and I think Don recognized that I'm willing to take on a little bit more challenging projects than maybe your average bear, you know, and he he went to me and said, you know, I've always hypothesized that that the MHC processing pathway could present glycopeptides. I believe in you like take this and run with it. And I did and I got really really uh into that. It was a, it was a very difficult project for many many years, but it ended up working out, so that was good. That was a really fascinating sort of exposition on your grad school experience, and in between you touched on a very important point of sort of like uh, having good mentors around you who will have faith in you and who will prop you up in both good and bad times, and not really sort of leave you hang out to try. And this was really present, especially as many sort of contemplate grad school offers and all. And there's this whole scenario of to sort of do a PhD on there are these preconceived biases and notions sort of many uh, possess and many unfortunately it has been reinforced by the system to do be a, to be a great chemist you need to be sort of run 24 hours in the lab or something of that sort but that's not really the case as your example and your incredible mentor show showcase to us yeah at no point did don say that i needed to be in the lab 24 hours a day in fact we kept regular hours um he didn't even really expect us to go in on the weekends um So it was it was definitely a pretty laid back graduate environment. Um even in Carolyn's lab, I mean people worked a lot, don't get me wrong, but there was never a pressure from her to be there all the time. You know, there were a lot of people that had kids and so they kept pretty regular hours so that they could be with their kids and 
you know, she totally could empathize with that having her own and was very supportive of how much, you know, we wanted to, to put in. So. Absolutely. So during your grad school time, did you sort of suffer the evictious imposter syndrome? Or even now, do you sort of grapple it at times? As many have come on random works have, and have said that that imposter syndrome doesn't really leave you of sorts. So how do you sort of, how did you confront it? How do you confront it even now? And what are some general tips or advice you'd like to dole out to sort of tackle this evictious syndrome that sort of pervades a lot of people's lives in academia and other ways? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely true that imposter syndrome never leaves you. Um, I have gotten better at controlling it over the years. Um, I would say at UVA, it didn't, it didn't um, affect me as much. I think that univer- the University of Virginia is like a top 50 chemistry program, but it is not a top five chemistry program, you know. And so I felt like I, I fit in there. I belong there. I was worthy of being there. And, um, although I guess, yeah, candidacy exam and stuff, I definitely freaked out quite a bit that they were going to figure me out. So I guess maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but it was really when I got to Stanford that things got like the imposter syndrome hit and it was very real. I was surrounded by the smartest people I've ever met and they knew all of this stuff that I hadn't even begun to start learning, especially in the realm of chemical biology and glycobiology. Like I knew a mass spec, like the back of my hand, but everything else was very, very new. So there was a huge learning curve there. And, um, and so, yeah, I don't know exactly how I learned to temper it, but I think a lot of it is tempering your own anxieties. And at least that's, that speaks to me. Um, And so questioning everything that you think people are thinking and reevaluating that in a different light. And that helps just sort of be like, you know, maybe they don't think that about me, or maybe they, they, you know, they don't know this about mass spec and they're teaching me this about something else. And so our, you know, our skill sets are complementary. And so for me, it's about reframing things and, and realizing that everybody probably feels this way to some extent. Um, yeah. That was incredibly pleasing and that's a dictum that one can sort of adopt both in life and science as a whole. So that was really great and you talked about sort of going to heading up to the other side of the coast and working with Professor Caroline Bertozzi's group. So your thesis sort of focused on mass spectrometry and sort of glycosylations and all. And so was it a natural extension because Professor Bertozzi has been a real legend in the whole field of glycobiology and all catalyzing it and it's right from its early days and all. So was it a natural fit or was there some other labs also you sort of explored and how did you sort of land up, land your postdoc and did you sort of continue working along the same lines as your grad school during your postdoc days or as you said you sort of picked up a lot of new things, new tools in your toolkit and sort of like focused on something totally different yeah okay there were a lot there were a lot of questions in that one question um so yes my grad work did focus on mass spectrometry and had I would say a touch of glycobiology involved um but after I graduated, I actually stayed in Don's lab for an extra year or two because I just wasn't really, really ready to leave. I, I still felt like there was more that 
him and his right-hand man, Jeff Shabanowitz, could teach me about mass spec and mentorship and so on. Um, and during that time, I got even more involved in the glycobiology of, you know, uh, cancer-associated mechanisms. And as I got further and further into this field, Don eventually said to me, like, look, I've never really wanted to get into carbohydrates. This is like, you know, this is way more than I wanted to do. And I really think it's time for you to like find a postdoc. He wasn't kicking me out. He was just saying like, if you want to mentor in this field, you're going to have to find someone else. So I essentially get, I made a list of, you know, people in that have some mass spec, like ongoing research, but that had primarily glycobiology or chemical biology research. And I want to say that there's a caveat here because a lot of chemistry, like traditional chemistry laboratories will not allow you to apply to more than one postdoc at a time. Don never said that to me or, you know, made me do that. I just sent out, you know, eight emails to my list of people saying, here's my experience, here's my CV. You know, I would really enjoy talking to you more about the potential of a postdoc in your lab. And from that, I mean, there were probably like three or four that said, you know, I just don't have the funding. If you come in with a fellowship, I can take you, but you know, otherwise, sorry, you know, and then the other four or five had me out for an interview. I had offers at every place and I narrowed it down to someone that was at Harvard who was my graduate school collaborator and it would have been a very clear extension of what I was doing in Don's lab. And, um, and then I had the offer in Carolyn's lab and it was further away from home. It was, you know, all the way across the country and I didn't know anybody out there and I didn't really know a lot of the techniques that were ongoing in Carolyn's lab. And I felt like it was the harder decision um, but it was the decision that ultimately would be the best for my career. And that's why I made the decision, which again was a very, very uh, good decision for me. Um, but yeah, so then in Carolyn's lab, I wouldn't say that what I did was an extension of my grad work by any means um, in the sense that I totally changed biological applications. I was still doing mass spec and I'll always do mass spec, but the application of my work was quite different. But it was really, really good timing for me to reach out to Carolyn because she had she had dabbled in mass spec, I would say, but she was definitely by no means someone that you would think of when you think of glycoproteomics. And when I joined, I think she saw the opportunity to have a true mass spectrometrist in the lab. And she had just been poached from Stanford um, and so had a pretty sizable startup at Stanford, which she invested in a mass spectrometer. And so she sort of gave me the reins and was like, buy it, set it up, get it running and go. And so that's what, that's what I did. And, um, and yeah, I think I answered all your questions. 
that was really really fascinating and that was really fun and as you talked about not knowing things and uh, contrary to popular perception a lot of the time scientists sort of don't really know things and it's a quest to figure out that they chance upon random breakthroughs and all and it's not really sort of these random walks actually sort of catalyze breakthroughs these random encounters of sorts rather than sort of learning things ahead and landing up on something and that was really fascinating and you talked about sort of again sort of like so you talked about your incredible fascination with mass spectrometry as you said you will never stop doing it of sorts so how do you see how do you see or how can we see sort of mass spectroscopy scaling up in the near future so can there be a sort of like how cryo em really revolutionized the whole field of imaging of all biological imaging of sorts so is there some sort of appeal that's around the corner or that sort of can take the field to the next level of sorts or is there something else that's going to happen that's going to revolutionize it to put it in popular terms well i think the revolution of mass spectrometry happened in the 90s with electroshockization if i'm totally honest i mean that opened up an entire world of possibilities in terms of protein and peptide analysis and the instrumentation developments from there have just been pretty uh, incredible i mean the invention of the orbitrap now you have ion mobility coupled to mass spectrometry there are there are things that come out every single day in the mass spec field that may seem incremental to an outsider and maybe possibly are incremental but on the whole have made the field um in everyday use you know and so i think that people think of mass spec as something that's really easy and you know you just hit a button on the instrument and it goes and and so on and so forth but it's a field in and of itself and um and i don't necessarily know like what the next revolutionary thing that's to come will be but you know let's hope it's in my lab that's really fun and so as you talked about you sort of like uh, again went back to the coast and sort of uh, took a sort of started your own lab in yale so was it a conscious decision to come back to the east coast of sorts where you did you sort of like uh, went on or you also again applied to a lot of places and basically the department in yale fit your interest the best and what you are sort of planning to do and later on you could elucidate on what exactly are you planning to do in the coming decade or so and what track are you trying to sort of foray into with your research interest again loaded questions um okay so i applied to a lot of schools i had 15 interviews and i had eight offers um i would say it was not necessarily a conscious decision to come back to the east coast or even the midwest um but i really only had one interview on the west coast so it was kind of inevitable that i came back to the east coast slash midwest so um and honestly if i'm if i'm being totally honest i i kind of wanted to just to be closer to family and 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 you know personal reasons like that but um in terms of the places that i had offers and my the options on the table there were a few things one was that i wanted a place with a med school so i had easier access to clinical samples 
And, you know, people that were at universities that didn't necessarily have med schools were always like, you can form those collaborations. They don't need to be next door. And I know that's true. I've worked with the collaborators in the UK and France and so on and so forth. But I wanted the ability to go to a seminar, brush elbows with somebody and say, you know, hi, I'm Stacy. I'm in the chemistry department. I'm doing X, Y, and Z. You know, um, I just think the barrier to entry is a lot lower there. Um, and, um, and the other thing that was really important to me was to have complementary research where I felt like they didn't necessarily have a ton of ongoing work that was exactly the same as mine, but that I fit a niche in their department or the university as a whole um, that could be filled essentially. And, um, and the last thing was that, you know, you'd think that with the explosion of glycobiology research in the last decade or so, um, that people would kind of be on board with its importance and uh, in implication in health and disease. But there are still quite a bit of people that have to be convinced that glycosylation is important. And it's important not only on the macro level, but on the micro level. And so, you know, some of the places I went, I really had to convince them that, you know, glycosylation is, is important and needs to be studied on the molecular level. And um, I figured that I didn't want to be at a place that didn't appreciate my research at the, at the outset. And if I'm trying to get tenure somewhere that I don't want someone making my tenure case, that's like, eh, it's okay, you know, she's done all right. <laughs> and it, but I'm not really sure if this is important. Um, whereas at Yale, um, they really just got it. Like it was an instantaneous thing. I didn't really have to sell it that much. It was clear that, you know, the, at least the search committee and, and some of the other professors really understood what I was pitching and understood the potential of what I was pitching. And that was really important to me. So on top of that, it was just sort of a gut feeling. When I left Yale, I, all of the things sort of came together for me and fit really well. And, um, and yeah, so truthfully though, COVID did have some, some role to play in, in my decision-making because I had done 15, I had done all 15 interviews and I had gone on two second visits and I was supposed to go on my other six or seven visits. And, um, and that's when the shutdown happened. And so I didn't even get to come back to Yale to see the city or the rest of the university. And instead I got wind that Yale was sort of at the top of the list of places that were instilling a hiring freeze. And so Carolyn emailed me and said, I would go like, this is just the tip of the iceberg. More places are going to be doing this. Like pick your number one place and just go with it. So I called the chair of the department. We negotiated my deal and I signed like two weeks later. So um, I think the process would have been quite different without COVID. Not to say that my decision would have been any different. I'm very happy with my decision, but the whole process was just very... Um, very different than what I think the normal process is. 
Absolutely, because in a year that was sort of marked by a global pandemic ravaging through and multiple lockdowns of sorts, the word normal has lost its original definition of sorts. And you're sort of managing to sort of securing a professorship and kickstarting your love in these very turbulent times. That was really something. And also, how else did COVID impact your work? Did you did it sort of uh, have? Did you think of sort of differing your starting your love by a year of sorts or all in these in these absolutely not normal times and all did it also impact the research that you were carrying out or were you just sort of wrapping up things up and basically it just impeded the process of bit but not that much yeah so i knew even before covid happened that i wanted to defer until january um and that's because i I didn't really anticipate being gone from the months of December until March, which essentially what was with 15 interviews and traveling all over the country, I was gone six days a week and I was home Sunday or actually it was usually home Saturday to unpack, do laundry, repack, and then go back out again. So I had no time to do research. So the writing was on the wall that I definitely wanted more time to be able to wrap up the projects in Carolyn's lab because um, I knew that it would be a, a decent amount of time before my instruments were up and running or I had all my equipment in place. And so I wanted to take care of those projects first. Um, and so I had already asked for my start date to be deferred until January. That was only reinforced by COVID. Um, but I'm not going to lie to you. The shutdown was actually <laughs> um, massively good for my research because had I had the shutdown not happened, I would have had to continue traveling for probably another two or three months to go to all the second visits that I had. Instead, it gave me an opportunity to stop, analyze data that I had been putting off for months, write papers that I'd been putting off for months. So I ended up submitting like, I don't know, 10 papers last year or something, um, simply because I finally had time to sit down and do them. Um, and then when we reopened in January, or, or not January, excuse me, um, June or July, I went back into the lab and was able to sort of finish all of the, the wet work for my final project in Carolyn's lab. Um, and then, yeah, so then I left in sort of mid-December and got here in January and I've been working on starting up my lab ever since. And I am very glad I waited until January because I never would have gotten that project done had I had I tried to do it here. Um, I think setting up a lab is normally slow and it's even slower in COVID. So it's, it's, uh, it's taken a while. <laughs> That was a really riveting account. And it seems like this sort of like the COVID had the impact on you that the Vaponic played hard on Isaac Newton of sorts. And you had a very clear. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> but, but yeah, that was really something. And sort of uh, as you talked about adapting to these very turbulent times and already turbulent world of sorts and all. And that was really fascinating. So Professor Manake, you have been working with sort of like a fancy of your research interest or mucins, a class of glycosylated proteins of sorts. So what exactly fascinated them about you and what sort of inspired you to sort of keep working with them and sort of investigate deeper questions related to it? Yeah, so, um... You know, I really didn't know much about mucins 
before joining Carolyn's lab. And even when I got to Carolyn's lab, I really wasn't sure what I was going to work on other than of course, getting the instrument set up and, and going. Um, and I was approached by a graduate student at the time who um, came to me with an enzyme. And he said, we have this enzyme, we know it cleaves mucins. What can we do with this? Or, and I forget exactly like how the project transpired, but, or what they exactly wanted to do with it. But my theory was, well, we should characterize this and, and figure out exactly what it's doing. And then we'll be able to really implement it or use it for other purposes. And in doing that, and then reading a lot about mucins and what's known about mucins and um, what isn't known about mucins. And that really, really triggered my, um, my interest in the project and in mucins in general. Um, because, you know, we know what a gross level that mucins are upregulated in in cancers especially um you know muc1 is upregulated in over 90 percent of breast carcinomas muc16 is the only available biomarker for ovarian cancer and we know that their glycan structures change you know there's an upregulation of certain types of glycasylation and so on and so forth um but we no one has yet been able to actually sequence a mucin at the glycoprotein level and so this really is sort of a, a common thread throughout my career. When someone says that you can't do something, I am much more intrigued in trying to do it, which might be masochistic, but in my mind, it's, if you go where no one, is, no one else is willing to go, there's a lot of low hanging fruit for, um, for projects and, and, and discoveries. And so, um, so sure enough, in characterizing this enzyme, uh, we realized that it was a mucinase, meaning that it's an enzyme that is specific for mucins and that it had this really interesting cleavage motif and that we could use that in mass spec workflows to improve our ability to sequence mucins and that it had interesting biological applications. And so all of that really opened my eyes to how we could really take a tool that is, you know, an enzyme, it's, and it's secreted by a pathogen and then repurpose it for the study of mucins for like to increase our ability to, to study them. Um, that really got me sort of started in, in mucins. Um, and was there more of that question? I don't remember. No, that, that was a really great account. And you also have been sort of dabbling in the omics of it, the glycoprotein omics and all. So how, uh, so uh, something as someone working in systems biology, I've heard a lot of people sort of say that glycan sequencing is a really tough thing to do of sorts and all. So what are the challenges associated with, them, with it? Have you yourself been uh, sort of, had to tackle some of those and how do you see the whole field shaping up is there a lot of potential in the term of the omics of whole glycobiology yeah that's a loaded question as well um so n glycoproteomics so asparagine linked glycans is actually relatively routine at this point. I wouldn't say that it's totally straightforward, but somebody that is unfamiliar with glycoproteomics can actually probably um, do N-glycoproteomics pretty well. Um, O-glycoproteomics is really where the issue comes in. And some of the challenges that are involved are that 
oglycans can modify any serine or serine. There's no consensus motif. And the predictive tools that we have at this point are not great, um, primarily because we don't know what sites are, <laughs> are endogenously modified. So it's hard to predict what ones will be endogenously modified. Um, adding insult to injury there is that um, there are over a hundred different glycans that modify oglycan sites. So when you add in the heterogeneity of we don't know what sites are modified with over 100 glycan structures, that's a huge amount of macro and micro heterogeneity, which makes it very difficult for any search algorithm to come along and figure out what sites are modified by what glycans. So then there, there lies a lot of um, detailed hand analysis of the, you know, of the data that you get. And so Again, part of the reason why I really <laughs> enjoy this field is because there are a lot of things that can happen that would be big breakthroughs when they do happen. Um, I mean, the, and the ability to characterize enzymes that can cleave these regions was a huge breakthrough. I, of course, I'm biased, but I think it was a huge breakthrough. Um, the second thing is that um, we need better methods to um, separate them to get better, you know, isolation of specific um, isomers or glyco glycoforms. Um, we need better ionization tools. Uh, instrumentation analysis, I think it would be really interesting to see how we could couple ion mobility to, to the mass spectrometers. And, and a lot of companies are currently trying to do that. Um, even moldy imaging, we can't image oglycans at this point. Um, so that's something I'm, I'm touching with. And then of course, software development that will be able to routinely analyze our, our data uh, without having to go through and hand annotate it. Um, so there are a lot of things that, that uh, can come about that would be pretty revolutionary in the field. That was a really terrific elucidation of the long-standing challenges and your motivation of sorts, the questions that you've been studying of sorts and all. And uh, earlier, a bit earlier, you also talked about sort of being attracted to problems that many say are not doable of sorts or solvable in the long run. Those really fascinate you. And once really reminded of the um, very first interview that Professor Francis Arnold gave to the Nobel Committee right after the announcement where she talked about when she also started working in directed evolution, she was sort of told that this was not something stuff that gentlemen do. And her response was bang on point that she was an engineer and not a gentleman. And she happily did that. And we all know the phenomenal effects, directed evolution and the wonderful work that Professor Francis Arnold did that also catalyzed the Nobel and all really revolutionized science and that was a really great point that you made about sort of tackling problems and challenges that not many are sort of attracted to of sorts considering the revolutionary nature of solutions are sort of like brought out and all so that was really fascinating yeah i um i i've heard francis francis arnold say that um and what's what's funny is that i was actually inspired by um Dame Carol Robinson. She's a mass spectrometrist at Oxford. And I heard her give a talk when I was in early graduate school and her story really inspired me um, because she started as like, I think she started as a tech in a lab somewhere and she took 
she decided to get her PhD and then she took some time off to raise a family and she came back. And, you know, when she was starting out, people said that there was no way that she could do like analysis of these giant protein complexes. And similarly, she was like, just watch me do it, you know? And, um, and so I took, I took massive inspiration from that. Absolutely. Professor Robinson is also a legend in this whole field of fast spectro chemical biology. And that was really fascinating. And this also sort of brings into question the sort of problems many underrepresented groups and minorities in science and STEM in general sort of face. And you have been someone who has had a very fascinating path right to the top, actually, of science. At the same time, you have been a first-generation college student, as well as a woman, and who has sort of shattered multiple glass ceilings. So were there any moments you had sort of suffered issues like sort of disparity or bias and discrimination because of your gender or your background and all? And did you have to sort of start, step in to tackle it? Did you have, have to tackle it? Or was there some mentee of yours whilst you were a PhD student or a postdoc who sort of suffered and you had to sort of step in to confront it? Oh, you know, I think that a lot of gender bias is, is very, it's like a silent killer. You don't know it's there, but it's there. Um, sometimes it's a little bit more overt. Don't, don't get me wrong. I've definitely been told, oh, you know, the boys have the better ideas or, um, or like, oh, you'll never get into Michigan. I mean, like things that are, that are more overt, but I think more often it's sort of like a, it's a silent thing that happens. Um, so I've never really had to tackle that and I've never overtly experienced, uh, discrimination from being, you know, from a lower income family or, you know, the first generation college student, I think there too, um, it's, it's more a lack of understanding than it is overt discrimination, if that makes sense. Like, you know, people are surprised when they hear that I work two jobs in undergrad and like, oh, you didn't do undergrad research? No, I had to work so I could pay my bills. Like, like um, and so because of that, you know, some of my basic organic chemistry knowledge suffered because I was juggling a lot of things. And so there's a lack of understanding with, you know, how or why some of my, you know, things I should have learned in college are suffering um, because I was juggling a lot more than, you know, a lot of the students at, at Stanford were at that time. Um, so I think those are, that's, and that plays into the imposter syndrome question that you asked earlier as well. Um, but you just gotta take that and own it. And, you know, I think that if anything, it, it made me more determined and also very more, very much more efficient with my time. So. That was a very poignant, but a really brilliant answer to that. And that was a, sort of a really a wonderful point you made about sort of it being more of a coming out from a lack of misunderstanding of sorts or not sort of relating to what 
people sort of the circumstances people are in and all and so how do you sort of like as you said you sort of juggling to jobs while you know undergrad and then as you moved on to the high co- pressure cauldron of academia and the sciences and grad school postdoc and currently you're a professor so how do you juggle or balance your personal and professional life now is there something you sort of do to detach yourself from science or when things get too strenuous or something of that sort so how what sort of is your distraction Oh, I mean, I have a lot of distractions. <laughs> I mean, I have a very, very strong support network of friends and family, and um, without them, I would be nowhere. Um, so, talking to them or hanging out with them is always my favorite thing to do. Um, but in terms of juggling personal and and and, and professional life. I think everybody has their limits of how often and how how much they can work and I hit my limit at some point in grad school where I was working 7 days a week I was working you know 10 hours a day and I was just it got to the point where I needed a break like I needed to stop and that was the point that I realized that I need one day where I don't look at my computer at all like that is my one day off and i can do things like running errands and cooking and prepping for the week or i can do something like going and hanging out with friends or going to be whatever you know that's my day where i rest my brain and recover from the long week and then i go into that i also allow um myself at least one decent vacation <laughs> throughout the year um i really love to travel um so i I try to I try to get somewhere new at least once a year. That was a really sort of uh, wonderful and so you also have been sort of actively communicating your work and sort of indulging in scientific outreach of sorts and all. So how does it sort of like help shape your science, help shape you as a scientist and all and is this something like you sort of picked up considering your mentors and all people around you was sort of uh, um doing it all the time or so or it really fascinated you going out there and talking about your work um do you mean like via podcasts or via twitter or oh uh, sort of twitter social media and all putting out your papers talking about it openly discussing it and all so Yeah. Um so that definitely did not come from Don. <laughs> Don probably doesn't he probably has heard of Twitter, but there is zero way that he has ever gone on Twitter. Um and uh, being as as established as he is, he doesn't need that to communicate his work, you know, he can rely on on his um uh his standing in the community. Uh I really started to recognize the benefits of talking about your work and being on Twitter and you know promoting your own research when I was in Carolyn's lab um I think I always knew that she was on Twitter but I never really started paying attention until um until later on and it was actually one of my colleagues who when he joined the lab um he was just talking about how many conferences he'd been to and that you know he tries to go to I don't know three to four a year and up till that point I might have gone like one or two a year and it wasn't necessarily something that I prioritized and he was on Twitter and 
I guess I saw through him a lot of the benefits of being a young person in this field and how much that can promote your work um, and just and put it in front of people that wouldn't necessarily have seen it before. And so that really kind of kickstarted my, you know, conference tours and getting on Twitter and, you know, and so on and so forth. In terms of um, podcasts and outreach and, and all of the things that I do that are outside of that, that's more just um, so that people understand that not everyone comes from a track where they knew that they were going to be a professor all their lives and that, you know, not everyone's parents are professors and doctors and lawyers and so on. I mean, you can you can have a circuitous path and still make it in this environment. So that was a fantastic point, and absolutely, it's sort of like uh, scientists being in their ivory towers all the time, not really stepping out of labs and all. These are very unhealthy stereotypes that sort of about science and scientists in general that are pervaded media and society at large and twitter has been a sort of a great equalizing medium of sorts when you have fantastic uh, absolutely incredible researchers and professors like you professor Bertos, you're out there actively communicating their work sort of replying to questions from random undergrads on the other side of the world and all that's really fascinating and it's a great equalizer medium for underrepresented groups and other minorities in stem yeah absolutely that sort of the and that was uh, that also sort of brings us into the sort of the importance of communicating one's work and all, mostly because like especially as we sort of juggle with issues like misinformation and disinformation rather than lack of information, it's misinformation that sort of really sort of uh, plagues society at large, and that's how you have anti-vaxxers or something, all those groups coming out and something as simple as wearing masks to prevent a pandemic becoming a heavily politicized issue. And it sort of also brings in the, to the whole question of the very great importance of communicating our work, because as we can see in the example of the mRNA vaccines, many are prone to believe that the vaccines were developed in a span of a year, but it's equally important to realize that mRNA research has been funded by the National Institute of Health for the last three to four decades. And it is these decades of work and research work on absolutely unrelated things that happened that sort of catalyzed the whole vaccine process and enabled us to get it out there within a year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't have anything to add to that. That's totally, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> That, that was really great and th this was a really wonderful and a fascinating sort of overview of the incredible work you have been doing, your gritty but absolutely fantastic journey in science shaped by your phenomenal mentors and other people around you and the wonderful research you have been carrying out. So finally, as a random works podcast tradition, which three people would you like to come and divulge their experience in a random work? Which three would I like? Yeah, they to... can. So you can nominate three people who you think should come and sort of divulge their experience in a random way. Oh gosh, I don't know. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of people that aren't too advanced in their career that they'll be too over. Like Carolyn, for instance is too overwhelmed and overbooked to possibly go on a podcast like this as far as i'm aware um 
So I'm trying to think of some, some people that might be interesting to hear from that aren't super advanced in their career, but have established themselves. Um, Nick Scott is, is uh, an Australian glycoproteomics mixed person who does some really incredible work with um, bacterial glycosylation. Um, Christina Wu is a, uh, is one of another Carolyn uh, postdoc who's currently at Harvard and she does some really incredible um, chemical biology work. Uh, she just came out with a new paper in Nature Chemical Biology um, uh, using an O-glycanase to remove glycans. Very interesting stuff. Um, and I'm trying to not just name people that are my friends. Um, and then, uh, um, Uh, Nia Wang is at, I believe she's at Scripps and she's another person that's doing glycan engineering, um, very cool chemical biology work and, uh, probably be, have an interesting story to tell. Truthfully, I don't know any of the background of, of, of any of them of how, or how they came to be professors. I just know their work and, and their work is very interesting to me. So. Those are some really terrific nominations. And before we leave, just a thing that I'd like to ask you, considering the incredible journey you have had, shaped by hardships and a lot of incredible mentors you have around you and all, what is an advice you'd like to give it to out there, to students from underrepresented groups and everyone out there who sort of fancy a path in science or for themselves, coming from a background such as like yours, where not many sort of know about what exactly a researcher or researcher entails. Okay, this is gonna sound incredibly hand wavy, but one of the things that's gotten me to where I am is trusting my gut. And I think that if you trust your gut, not only in terms of what institute you decide to do your graduate work at, but also who you decide to work for. Like if you get a feeling that it's not going to be a good fit, it's probably not going to be a good fit. And same thing with, you know, with your research projects, if something to you doesn't feel like super interesting and that you want to do this full force, it's probably going to eventually make you cringe. And so you really have to trust your gut in terms of what interests you, in terms of who you want to be around, in terms of who you want to mentor you. And that so far has steered me correct. Of course, it's an N of one, but um, I think people tend to really look at like what's on paper and go based on like what will look best on my CV and so on and so forth. But that can get you into a lot of trouble with bad mentors or bad situations. And, and I've seen that happen. And so I think that if you really listen to what people are telling you around you and what you're telling yourself, um, tends to tends to work out better in the long run. That's an absolutely fantastic piece of advice to take leave on. Thank you. Thank you for coming and indulging us in a very fascinating random work. Yeah, thank you again for having me.